Please be seated. And as you take your seat, you can open with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we're going to look this morning at the Christmas story in Luke 2, 1 through 20. It incidentally is the third scripture reading this morning in our service. Last Sunday, we looked at Jesus' birth from Joseph's vantage point in the Gospel of Matthew. Joseph was confused and distraught because he was engaged to be married with Mary, but an angel appeared and helped him understand all that was taking place as she was found with a child. Today, I would like us to look at Luke's account of Jesus' birth. It's important to remember that Matthew's Gospel is uh, primarily focused towards the Jews. I believe that Matthew was trying to reach out to his Jewish brothers and sisters and convince them that Jesus was the Messiah. If you read Matthew's Gospel, it is focused and put forward with a lot of Old Testament scriptures. In fact, Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than the other Gospel writers, by far. Luke's Gospel has a more international focus to indicate that the Gospel is not simply for the Jews alone, but also for Gentiles, that is, all other peoples on the face of the planet who are not Jewish. Matthew's focus and impact on Jesus' birth is a Jewish young couple. Luke's focus is wider in scope and more international in nature, as we will see. This morning, I want you to notice three things in this passage. Number one, the birth of Jesus. We're going to take a look at the birth of Jesus and a few items of interest concerning that. Secondly, the angel's announcement in verses 8 through 14. I'll spend the bulk of my time there. And then finally, the shepherd's reaction in verses 15 through 20. So along with an outline of the message, join me in prayer. Let's ask God to bless our time together in the Scriptures. Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Father, we wish to see Jesus and Him only. We pray on this Christmas day that we would lift up and exalt Him and Him alone. May your Spirit move in our hearts, using your Word, Lord, to draw us closer to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, notice Jesus' birth. And I want you to see three things here. Number one, the timing of his birth. The timing of his birth. The Bible says there in the first part, it was in the days of Augustus Caesar, the first Roman emperor. And he made a decree that all the world should be counted or take a census. Now, more than likely, he did this for taxation purposes. So the Jews were coming under dominion of taxation of a foreign power. The strangers were beginning to rule over them. They no longer had an independent government. And the Roman Empire was the fourth kingdom in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which Daniel interpreted for him in Daniel 2.40. Listen to the words of Daniel. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron and as much as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break 
all these in pieces. If you look through your history, you see that Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and the Persians and the Greeks, and then finally Rome, all wanted to rule the world. And they successively proved that the world, by its own wisdom, cannot know God. And so, in the midst of this greatest empire, the Roman Empire, the Lord Jesus was born. It was the right time and the perfect time for Christ to come into the world. That's why Paul says in Galatians 4.4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. The point is God's timing, ladies and gentlemen, is always perfect. We should never give way to anxiety over the events and course of human history. Even during this Christmas in 2022, as we look forward to another year, we should never give way to anxiety. Wondering who's going to be making the decisions and who's going to be ruling the world. It doesn't matter. Because ultimately, our Lord God is in control of all the affairs of human beings. And He is sovereignly working out all things according to His timetable. And that does affect us because Psalm 31.15 says of the psalmist, My times are in your hand. Very securing to hear that. Martin Luther once said to Philip Melanchthon, his close associate, Cease, Philip, to try to govern the world. Apparently, Philip was an anxious sort. I didn't know that about him, but the timing of the birth of Jesus was perfect. And notice the place of his birth. It was not Nazareth of Galilee, where his mother, the Virgin Mary, lived. The prophet Micah said the event would take place in Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And so it came to pass that Bethlehem Christ was born. And so you see, clearly God moved on the heart of Augustus Caesar to declare a census. We may look at that and we see the Roman domination coming more and more on the Jews. But in the whole configuration of things, what is God doing? He is fulfilling sacred scripture. He is fulfilling prophecy. And the point for us is we should take comfort in the fact that not only is the Lord's sovereign timing and intervention perfect, and in full control of all human affairs, but also that God's Word was and always will be fulfilled and never return void when the Lord sends it out. Listen to the words of Isaiah 55.10. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout and giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall never return to me void or empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word to the prophet Micah was fulfilled when Jesus was born. And the word of God became incarnate with the birth of our Lord Jesus. And now we have the whole of God's word recorded for us in the treasury of sacred scripture. Let us rejoice. Not only is God's timing perfect, but his word is secure. And he is bringing about all things and summing them up in Christ Jesus, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. Well, the third thing, not only the timing of his birth and the place or location of his birth, but also the manner of his birth. 
Now we see here in verses 1 through 7 the grace and the condescension of Christ. He was not born under a roof of his mother's house, but in a strange place. And when born, he was not laid carefully in a prepared cradle, but in a manger because there was no room for him in the end. Christ was not born with any pomp and circumstance, though he was a king. He was not born in a palace, although he deserved to be. But to become poor as the very poorest of mankind and lowly as the very lowliest, there is, this is a love that passes knowledge. You see, Christ began his humiliation when he was born into this world. Jesus purchased for us a title of glory. Through his life of suffering as well as his death, he obtained eternal redemption for us. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, he was poor for our sakes. At the hour of his birth and the hour of his death, he had nothing. And through his poverty, we were made rich. Remember this Christmas day, Jesus was born at the perfect time in the perfect place, and in the perfect way. All of which was according to God's perfect plan. And you'll note here that Jesus had to be born there because of the fulfillment of Scripture, but it was very uncomfortable. They had to leave their own hometown. Can you imagine? I remember we were in New Orleans, and Diane and I, three kids at that time, were being chased out of the city because of Hurricane Andrew. And it was coming across uh, to the Louisiana coastline, and we took off for Baton Rouge. And later on, that storm kept easing to Baton Rouge, and so we loaded up the car and came back to New Orleans. And I remember feeling so uncomfortable. We were in a little Mazda 626, and when you go over the Causeway Bridge, these powerful winds were coming in from Hurricane Andrew, and literally, that little bitty car felt like it was moving side to side, you know? It was a very, very scary time. I think about that, and I can't imagine what it would be like to have to uproot, go to another place you're not familiar with, have no room for you in the local hotel or inn, and then have to deliver your baby in a filthy cowslip. To me, that speaks volumes. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is not afraid to come in humiliation to our messed up lives. This world is messed up because of sin. Things are out of control. And yet Christ humbled himself and was born into all that. You've got confusion in your life today? You've got unanswered questions? You have anxieties and worries? Look, the Lord Jesus came in the midst of a mess. And he delights. And he is perfect whenever you invite him into your life, even when things are messy and messed up. Well, I must move on. Not only the birth of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, but notice the angel's announcement. I preached this message before, this text, I should say, and I was stricken by the angels in this passage. You can learn a lot from an angel, believe it or not. I was never called one when I was younger. Uh, many people were. <laughs> Look at that little angel over there. You, know? you, know, you can learn a lot from an angel. And I want you to see here the announcement. God chose to use angels, not men, to make the announcement of the birth of Jesus. And remember, angels have no sin. They've never sinned. They don't need a Savior. Angels who are not fallen and required no Redeemer and no atoning blood. 
Nevertheless, I want you to see that what they say in the announcement is a reflection of who they are and what they do. I want you to notice several things. One, angels don't live in fear. Look at the first part of verse 10. The first thing this angel says is, do not be afraid. Now, not all fear is bad. Some fears keep us from doing foolish things. You have a fear of heights. You don't go up into places that you should not go. You don't bungee jump, so you'll probably be healthy. The fear I speak of is a deep-down sense of life being out of control. That feeling that I'm alone and often on my own as I live out my life. Fear of sickness, fear of a deadly disease, fear of losing a loved one. And this fear is the result of the fall of man into sin. We have many things to fear as a result of sin. The world has become a place filled with evil and unrest, a place of sickness and violence, a place filled with greed and injustice. But the angels don't fear. They don't have fear. It's just like the time of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, in the beginning in the garden, had no fear until sin entered into the picture. Then they felt the need to run away and hide. 1 John 4, 17 and 18 says, By this... Love is perfected in us so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment because as he is, that is Jesus, also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. For he who has fear, fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Look at the angels. They don't live in fear. And we ought to copy their example. If we know the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no reason to fear. No reason to fear in life, and no reason, as Nick pointed out beautifully last night, there is no fear in death. Angels also, secondly, have joy. Look at verse 10b. I bring you good news of great joy. Now, joy is not the same as happiness. Happiness involves circumstances. Joy is something completely internal based on God's truth not our circumstances. Indeed, biblical joy is based on a deep-down satisfaction with God. That's what joy is. Our complete dependence upon Him, not only for forgiveness of our sins, but also for everyday living in a fallen world. I love the words of the psalmist, the Lord is my refuge and my portion. The Lord is the one I run to when things are difficult and bad. And the Lord is the one I must have, my portion, in this life. As the psalmist says in another place, Who have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing I desire more than you. Now how do I find and maintain great joy? Well, that's simple. It's through acceptance of the gospel and abiding in Christ. What is the gospel? Well, the Lord Jesus, who was born many, many years ago, came into the world as the God-man. And he was sinless. From the day of his birth until the day of his death, he never sinned once in thought, word, or deed. Not once. I'm often amazed by that. Because God says that His 
perfect righteousness can be yours, can be mine. Because we're not righteous. We can't go a day without sinning. But the Lord Jesus never, ever, ever sinned. And if that weren't enough, the Lord Jesus was put to death on the cross. Ask yourself that question. Why in the world would somebody who never did anything wrong, why would anyone want to put him to death? Still worse, why would anyone want to put him through the worst torture in the ancient world, the death of crucifixion? But there were many people who hated Jesus. Not for what he had done, but for what he brought out of them. Darkness. They were full of greed, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were jealous of Jesus. Jesus was a threat to their place as the religious leaders. Jesus was a threat to their very lives and their future. To their profiting off of God's people. And so they put him to death on the cross. And you know what happened on that cross. The Bible makes it clear that behind the scenes, God Almighty was putting His own Son to death on the cross, using the means of the Roman soldiers and the hatred of the Jews. Why? Well, so that all of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, His perfect righteousness, could be yours and could be mine, that we could be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And because of his death, so that all of our sins would be atoned for. As Jesus died on the cross, he faced the wrath of the Father against sin, which was owed to you and me. And so when Christ said, it is finished, it wasn't merely his physical death. No, he had finished making the full, complete payment for all sin, yours and mine. When you put those two things together, you can't help but be filled with joy when you embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because now, all of your sins are atoned for. And you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, which no one can ever take away from you. And as the writer Jude says, when you are presented one day before the Lord God Almighty, you will be presented faultless, sinless. Because you are in Christ Jesus. When you accept the gospel, you have joy. And how do you maintain that joy? You abide in Christ. You have to remember the angels abide in the presence of God at all times. They may go on missions like this one, but they always come back. On the other hand, we human beings are invited to abide in the presence of God at all times, regardless of where we are in the gospel. We have it better than the angels, ladies and gentlemen. Because even now, though we're not with Christ physically, we are with Him spiritually. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear that we've already been raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly realm. We have a dual citizenship. I can see you physically as a believer. There is a sense in which you're already seated at the table of the Lord. And all things will come together one day, spiritually and physically, when Christ returns. But let's not lose sight of that. 
we can have joy down deep inside because we know we're forgiven and we know that we have what God demands because He furnished it Himself. Righteousness. Perfect righteousness. If you know Jesus Christ and you've embraced the gospel, you have all of that. John 15, 4 and 5, Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am him, he is the one that bears much fruit. He said in another place in John 17, I love this in the past, in the high priestly prayer, Father, I desire that they whom you have given to me be with me where I am. That they may behold my glory. What that means is though we remain here on earth, as Paul said in Ephesians 1, we've been raised up and seated with Christ in the heavens. You really get that theology, ladies and gentlemen. And you believe it. It will change your life. Abiding in Christ. Do you have joy this morning? Well, I must go on. Angels not only have great joy... Angels not only don't live in fear, angels show concern for other people. All other people. Look at 10C. Joy that will be for all the people. See, the good news of the gospel is both personal and universal. The gospel is a scandalous for Jews. They always thought they were the only ones who would count. No, the angel makes it clear that the gospel would go beyond the borders of Israel. It would be universal in nature and impact. And this is good to remember when we look around us and see so many, so many internationals, so many who are not like us, we Anglos. There's no racism in the kingdom of God. There are no barriers for the reach of the gospel. And angels think that way. How much more should we? What is a good argument for the church of Jesus Christ situated in a place like us to reach out to our Hispanic Neighbors. Angels. That's what angels will do. They show concern for other people. A fourth thing. Angels understand the need for a Savior. Look what he says, the angel in verse 11a. A Savior has been born to you. Now, if angels who have no sin see the need for a Savior, how much more should we? Seeing our sin before God is absolutely essential to embracing the gospel. I have to know that I'm a sinner and that I have a need before I reach out to Jesus. Even Jesus himself said that in Luke 15.10. I tell you, there is joy in heaven before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus Christ did not come to improve our lives, but to save us, body and soul, from eternal ruin. And once again, if the angels see the need for a Savior, how much more we. Let's pray for a greater sense of the misery of sin, as this leads to a deeper sense of gratitude. We ought to be like the angels in that regard. Also, fifthly, angels know Jesus Christ as the only Savior. Look at 11b. He is Christ the Lord. A Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. The angel makes it abundantly clear. This is not just any Savior. This is not a superhero 
or a superhuman. No, this Savior, this man to be born, is Christ the Lord. And using these words, the angel makes the two natures of Jesus crystal clear. He was 100% human and 100% God. Because humanity must be assumed without sin. And because atonement must be made through a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus Christ, for that reason, was the God-man. And he's the only one who can reconcile man to God. That's why Paul said in Timothy, there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Once again, the angels know that Christ is the only Savior. How much more should we? Also, sixthly, angels lead others to Jesus. Look at verse 12. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. The angel offers simple instructions to the shepherds to find Jesus. How often do I offer simple instructions to others concerning how to find Jesus? Often we Presbyterians, when we even share the gospel, we're so filled with so much theological language. And it's easy to lose sight of just getting someone in the right direction to Jesus. That's what evangelism is. Bringing someone to Christ. Do I pray for, do I look for opportunities to share my joy with others? How often do I offer simple instructions to others concerning how to find Jesus. You'll notice these shepherds, once they get the idea of who they're dealing with and they go to see the baby Jesus, then they go tell others. They don't wait for a training program. They don't wait for a doctorate in evangelism. They go. They just speak of their experience with the Christ. How often do I share simple instructions to someone else concerning how to find Jesus? The angels did it. We should too. Finally, angels exist to glorify God. Verses 13 and 14. They were praising God, this multitude of angels, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. This is what angels do with all of their time. They praise God and glorify Him in their obedience. All that their heavenly master does pleases and interests them. And this is precisely why God created not angels but us. To praise and worship Him and obey Him. What does Westminster say in the Shorter Catechism? First question, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You glorify God and you enjoy Him when you obey Him. Everybody wins. See, these angels know the misery of sin and what it's done to creation. They know the blessedness of heaven and the privilege of an open door into it. And they rejoice at the prospect of many souls being saved. Let us strive to be more like these angels. Listen to the words of J.C. Ryle. Our spiritual ignorance and deadness appear most painfully in our inability to enter into the joy which we see here expressed by the angels. Surely if we hope to dwell with them forever in heaven, we ought to share something of their feelings while we are here on earth. I couldn't agree more. You can learn a lot from a shepherd. Excuse me, an angel. (laughs) Well, the shepherd's reaction is the final thing in verses 15 through 20. You know, shepherds were considered the lowest of the low on the economic social totem pole. Shepherds were despised by Orthodox Jews. 
They could not observe all the meticulous hand washings and rules and regulations. And their flocks constantly made demands on them. And so an Orthodox looked down upon them. It was simple to see these individuals as not worthy of much. But God chose the shepherds to make the first glorious announcement of the birth of His Son, Jesus Christ. Why is that? I don't know. You can only speculate, but perhaps because they would pay heed to what God was doing and saying. Unlike so many others who run through life saying, what shall we eat and drink and put on? Or they're so busy with so many other things that the gospel message is grounded out. No, these shepherds listen. And I believe this portion of the passage teaches us that God favors, His favor rests not on the world or what the world calls important, but upon the humble, the lowly, those who are hungry spiritually. Listen to the words of 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. Christ revealed Himself to these shepherds using an angel or angels as a means of this message. What did they do? They went to Jesus and then they went to share Jesus with others. May we follow their example. This Christmas and on into 2023, let's go to Jesus. If you've never met Him, never invited Him into your heart and received the forgiveness of sins and His righteousness, I invite you to do that today. You've already done that. Let's abide in the Christ joy, the joy of the angels. And like the shepherds, let's keep going back to Jesus so that we can take Him to others around us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Christmas morning and the glorious good news of a wonderful gospel that You have given to us. Lord, I pray that we would go to Jesus, that this gospel would be true in all of our hearts, and that, Lord, we keep coming back to You, seeking to abide in You, afresh and anew, confessing our sins and walking with You so that our very lives might be a testimony along with our words, to others who don't know you. Father, I pray this morning on Christmas Day that the one or two here who have never invited you into their lives, the Lord Jesus, that your Holy Spirit would move in our midst and touch hearts, open eyes and ears, and gloriously save those who don't know you. Lord, do all these things and more. We'll give you the praise and the glory for all that you do. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.